you would join me for the scripture lesson today, found in Romans chapter 13, if you have a Bible. If you don't have one, there are a few Bibles in the rack in front of you. Romans chapter 13, we'll beginning with verse 8 and read to verse 14. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from slumber because your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. This is the word of the Lord. As we continue working through the book of Romans, let's pray and turn our attention to this text. God and Father, I give you thanks for your word that you would speak to us not just leave us here in your absence, but draw near and reveal yourself to us. Pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word, and that you would be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So have you guys ever seen those videos? I feel like sometimes they happen at the beginning of artsy television shows and things, but those videos where it starts zoomed in on this one object, and it's zoomed so far in that you really don't even know like what the object is. It looks like some weird alien thing or whatever, but slowly it starts to zoom out and zoom out, and suddenly you're like, oh, I see where this fits and the things around it, and, and then suddenly it all makes sense to you. Have you seen that before? We need the big picture sometimes to make sense of the details. I think life can get that way too in a lot of different ways for us that we're so focused on all these specific little things, these tasks that need to be done, or these chores around the house, and suddenly we just stop and we're like, why am I doing this? What is all of this for? It's only by zooming out again and seeing the place that those things take within our family and our work and our calling that they start to make sense. We need the big picture sometimes to make sense of the details. And I think that same thing is true about our faiths. I sometimes like to ask people kind of big questions that are unexpected just to see how they'll respond. And so one of the things that I've, I like to ask people sometimes when they start saying something about Christianity is, well, wait, what do you mean by Christianity? Like, what is Christianity? And I know that that probably makes some people want to punch me <laughs> because you're not supposed to do that kind of thing in polite conversation. But the answers are really interesting. Usually, it boils down to one of two lists. Either what they do end up doing is listing some kind of facts to you, 
Well, Christianity is like, there's God, and Moses parted the Red Sea, and Jesus died on the cross. Just these kind of, this set of disconnected facts. Or they list for you this set of rules and commandments. Well, Christianity means that you follow the Ten Commandments, and go to church on Sunday, and things like that. And it's not that those answers are wrong, exactly. Everything in both of those lists is a thing that's supposed to connect with Christianity and is a part of our Christian faiths. But what strikes me in the way that people say them when they list those things off is that it seems like those things don't really fit together with, for them. They don't make sense. They don't drive them towards any sort of love or passion. And I think part of the reason is because, again, those are details— and they don't make sense to us until they, until they find their place within bigger pictures. In the passage that we read this morning from Romans, Paul is giving these kind of summary thoughts on the Christian life and Christian obedience. But he's doing it not by listing a whole bunch of rules, but rather by trying to take these two big ideas, these two big pictures, and then present the, us with those pictures in a way that helps all of the details of the Christian life make sense. And so what I want us to do this morning is just look at each of those two pictures and try to see how they make our obedience come into focus and find its right place. And so the first of those ideas in verses 8 through 10 is that love fulfills the law. Love fulfills the law. So start in verse 8 of our passage. Paul writes, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So he starts with this specific note, let no debt remain outstanding. Um, by the way, certain people quote like this third of a Bible verse to, as an argument that Christians should never lend each other money, which is probably not what Paul's saying. He's just saying, look, like if you owe somebody something, you pay them back. But that's not really the point. He's using that as an image then to get to this main point, which is to say, but there is this debt that we do all owe each other that we can never repay, the debt of love. We have this continuing call to love one another, Paul says, because whoever has loved um, has fulfilled the law. So what does that mean? Well, Paul really says it fulfills in two ways. First, it fulfills the law in the sense that love summarizes the law. So if you keep reading in verse 9, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul lists four of the Ten Commandments, those against murder and adultery and stealing and coveting, and of course those are just examples, right? This applies to other commandments in the Bible as well, but he says that they're summed up in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And on one level, that seems obvious, and it's just a way of saying that that is a simple summary, as in, if you love somebody, you're not going to murder them or rob them. Paul's pointing out that basic reality. But there's also something deeper, I think, about his observation, um, and something that we can miss. Have you ever wondered um, why the Ten Commandments are all negative? Have you ever heard anybody, sometimes people complain about this, right? That it's this list of things that you're not supposed to do, and that sounds negative, right? These thou shalt not. But something to consider, if that's how you've ever felt. I think a list of negative commandments is actually the easiest way to express a positive view of obedience and life. 
That's the easiest way to express a positive view of obedience, but here's why. It's because imagine that you were going to make a list of the things that you may do. Instead of a list of, you know, thou shalt not, imagine what the list is of thou mays in Christianity. Thou may have dinner with a friend or with your family or with yourself. Thou may help the poor. Thou may enjoy creation and go for a walk. Thou may bake a cake or a pie or barbecue something. Thou may build paper airplanes with your kids or take a nap or go fishing or clean your house. There's any number of things, right, that we are permitted to do. And even if we're trying to focus on loving our neighbor, that list can look all kinds of different ways. You might help them clean their yard. You might bring them cookies. You might send them a nice note or have a conversation with them or a thousand other ways to show love. The reason Christianity often gives specific negative commands is not because it's trying to be overly restrictive, but rather because it is fundamentally permissive. It is fundamentally permissive. Here's what I mean. You take the Ten Commandments, and you take the things implied by them and the other commands in Scripture, right? It's not meant for us to say, well, you know, I'm not going to murder my neighbor. I'm just going to beat them to within an inch of their life, right? We're supposed to recognize that they, they drive us in a certain direction. But we take that set of commands, and we avoid them. And then we say, what am I allowed to do? And the answer is, in a sense, anything else. Scripture often speaks of obedience as a state of freedom, and that's what that means. That the Bible doesn't tell you there is this one thing you have to do. Rather, it tells us the set of things that we ought not do, and then it simply lets us live. Let me try to give you a picture of that, because I feel like that can sound strange to people. But um, one of the questions that I get asked all the time is, how do I figure out God's will? Right? <laughs> this is one of the questions as a pastor you hear people ask. You've got some life decision— Or there's something that you're uncertain about, how do I figure out God's will? And there's more than this that we could say about it. But often when people ask that, it seems to come from this place of fear. That if they don't figure out exactly what they're supposed to do, that God's going to be angry at them and everything is going to go horribly wrong and their lives will end. And that actually comes from this wrong view of God's will. So let me, let me give you this picture, okay? Imagine that the screen represents all of the choices that you have in your life, all right? The way that we naturally think about it is assume that there's like one dot, one choice that is God's will. And we have to figure out that dot, right? And if we don't figure out that dot, then things will go horribly wrong. But that's not actually how the Bible views it. Instead, it takes that screen of choices— And it says, look, these are all your choices, and it says you have two fences, all right? There are two fences. One fence is sin. Um, It says don't do this set of things that are forbidden by the commandments. And then there is another sense in Scripture, which is foolishness, which is to say there's also a sense of wisdom and prudence about life. And for some people, there are things that are just foolish to do as well, and you probably shouldn't do them. I can't quote you like the Bible verse— saying it's a bad idea for you and your friends to go try to figure out how to spit fire, you know, but, but it's a bad idea. But, but between those two fences is God's will, and whatever you choose between those fences is in a real sense living in God's will. As long as you are not in sin or being foolish in a kind of clear way, then you're, you're okay. Now there's more to say than that, right? There's actually going to be another thing that pertains to that we'll get to in just a minute— But that fundamental reality 
of permissiveness and freedom is actually crucial to how we live the Christian life because that gives us a sense of rest to be able to say, I'm seeking to, to love God and obey him, and so I know that he is working through me and I'm in that place that is within his grace. So love is a summary of the law, but love is also the purpose of the law, Paul says. It's the purpose of the law. So verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of of the law. So love does not harm a neighbor, which is summarizing what he's kind of just said. But then he says, love is the fulfillment of the law, which sounds like what we've just been saying, but there's actually this subtle difference. So if you look at verse 8, um, Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So there he's kind of talking about us. He's saying that if we have loved others, then we have fulfilled the law. But now in verse 10, it's actually somehow saying that love itself is the fulfillment of the law. That it, in, in Greek, it's, it, it changes the word a little bit, and it says love is the fullness of the law. It's the purpose that the law exists to serve. That image of fences we used is helpful, but it's still not perfect. There's one more thing we would need to add to it, because while we are permitted to do everything within those fences, there's also a direction that our lives are supposed to have, and love is the thing that provides that direction, Right? So, so, so we live in those fences, we avoid the things on those sides, but we also then are called to have this heart that is seeking to love the world, and that really is what puts us in that place of service. When I was younger, I would um, sometimes play jazz music, and I think that that's sort of what Paul is getting at. Jazz is interesting because in jazz music, you improvise. You don't just play notes that are put on the page, but you have times when you're improvising. And here's what's interesting about improvisation. Um, you don't just play any notes you want. In the first place, there are rules, kind of like that law, right? There are rules in music. There are scales and time signatures and these things that you need to, to be doing just for it to, to sound okay. Like, like if everyone's playing in C and you play in B, that's, Brad and Kathy, you know, that will sound very, very bad, right? Um, so there are those rules. But the thing is, you can learn those rules, and you still aren't playing jazz music. Those rules make you like a proficient or a not terrible jazz musician. But to be a good jazz musician, you also need to feel this direction that the music has. There is this direction, this kind of drive that the music is supposed to give you. Um, and, you know, you feel that. And so... And, and then what, when you're improvising well, you're actually somehow doing this thing that fits not just with the, the key and the, the time signature, but that fits with the song and the feelings that it's expressing. And that's the difference between a proficient jazz musician and a great one. And love in the Christian life is a lot like that. See, here's the truth about Christian obedience. You can keep the rules. You can keep those negative commandments. You can avoid going over that fence but you still haven't arrived at our calling. Um, what Christianity says is that the way you avoid them and the reasons you avoid them also matter. Otherwise, you've still missed the two. You need both at the same time. But that's important. You need them both. So, like, like think about, let's say someone you know is doing something wrong, biblically, right? They're making choices that Scripture would say are wrong, um, there are two mistakes we can make when we think about love and obedience and all of that stuff and how that intersects with that person. The first mistake we can make is to deny 
what the Bible says. There are people who I think in the name of love do that, and that's problematic. We shouldn't just say, oh, don't worry about what God says. You just do you, and, you know, and don't worry about it. It's not um, love in the biblical sense to encourage people to jump over the fence or jump over it with them. However, and this is a big however, simply telling them that they're wrong or saying what God says does not mean that you're being a good Christian. You can tell God's truth in a way that is intrusive or mean or self-righteous. You can um, tell God's truth because, um, because it makes you feel good or just because they offend your sensibilities, and none of that is love. So love does call us to define that fence and not deny God's truth, but love also calls us to show it in a way that is compassionate and gentle and kind. And I can think of no greater example of that than Jesus himself. I mean, I don't know how you picture Jesus, how much time you spent in the Gospels. Jesus is this firebrand prophet, right? I think we lose that sometimes in our world. But he goes around and he says some of the— I mean, he talks about all the most controversial stuff in his day, and he talks about, you know, politics and hot-button religious moral issues and hell a whole bunch. I mean, he is this firebrand prophet who stirs things up um, in terms of telling God's truth. But Jesus is also a friend of sinners. These people would regularly invite him to their parties and want to hang out with him, so much so that the other religious people got very uncomfortable with Jesus. But the reason they did that isn't because Jesus didn't, in a sense, challenge them, right? Zacchaeus, the tax collector, um, I mean, when he meets Jesus and invites him into his house and it scandalizes the public, Jesus does also call Zacchaeus to repent, and Zacchaeus repents of his corruption and the way he's exploiting people. But the reason that these people welcome Jesus is because they have no doubt that he loves them, even in the midst of the ways that is challenging, that he shows a tenderness and an affection for them as people and sees them as human beings with dignity and something to offer. He does that to them in a way that makes them recognize that fundamental reality of love. In this calling, Jesus should be our example in life. He should teach us that path of love as well. So that's the first big picture idea, right, of love. That love is really this thing that helps us make sense of the rules and obedience of Christian life. That it summarizes these different commands that Scripture gives us, and that it provides us with a direction which those commands are intended to serve. That's the first big picture. The second one then, second big idea, is that the time is right. That the time is right. So now start in verse 11. And do this, which is what we just talked about, loving people, but do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The, time is, er, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. So Paul starts talking then with this sense of urgency. But I want us to be careful because I think we can kind of misunderstand what he's getting at a little bit. Um, so we read these verses and we immediately start talking about the return of Christ, about Jesus coming back. And that is, in a sense, correct. When Paul says that our salvation is nearer now than when he first believed, he's talking about salvation in the final sense of the word, which is in Scripture that the word salvation sometimes is talking about something that's past, as in the salvation that Jesus worked for us in his cross and resurrection, our salvation is, 
it finished then. Sometimes salvation is talking about something present, which is what we experience when we have faith in Jesus and trust in him. Um, that's why people talk about, like, being saved, right, as a Christian when they become a Christian. But sometimes scripture talks about salvation in the final sense, which is the final, like, end of sin and death and the resurrection and deliverance of us from everything that afflicts us. And because of the way Paul's talking here, he's clearly talking about that future salvation. And he sees that future salvation is coming soon. That's also true. As he says it in verse 12, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. That has led some scholars, actually, from this verse to conclude that Paul thought that Jesus was going to come back, like, next year, or, you know, I mean, sometime within his lifetime. But it's worth noting that he's not actually saying that. This is the closest he ever would come to saying something like that in the Bible. And he really doesn't say it. He just says that the night is almost over. Um, and that's missing the point because what Paul is saying in these verses is not really something about how soon Jesus will come back. Although we're supposed to have a sense that it could be soon. But rather he's trying to say something about the age in which we live. The time in which we live. That the time is right to follow Jesus. When he starts talking about night and day, he's using this image that he picks up again at the end of the verse. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Night and day, darkness and light. That's not talking um, about a calendar. That's talking about a state of being, these two kind of ages that we can live in. Paul continues that image in verse 13. He says, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. So Paul lists these pairs of sin, and um, they're not the only sins, obviously. But the main reason he seems to list them is because these images, these sins, again, are provoking a certain image in a believer's mind. So the carousing and drunkenness he talks about is the language that's used of these Roman parties, right, which are at night, in, you know, out in the gardens. And... Um, Sexual immorality and debauchery or, Im debauchery or impurity, again, is the sort of picture of sin in darkness, right? In private, in, in, in the hidden places. Um, and while it's maybe less clear, even that third one of dissension and jealousy is probably Paul picturing kind of nighttime scheming, right? And people, you know, whispering out in the darkness and in the alleyways in Rome. And so these are all sins that he's trying to call people from, but he's also trying to conjure this specific image them. He's saying, it's daytime, and these sins do not have a place in the day. Paul sums that up in verse 14, and he says, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And that, that's probably, although again, because it's the Bible, we don't read it that way, probably what Paul's really doing is continuing the image and saying, just as he says, let's behave decently as in the daytime in verse 13, he's saying, so get up and get dressed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul is thinking about Jesus' return and our future salvation. But his point is not to stress so much that the time is short, but that the time is right now for us to follow Jesus. He's trying to say something about the age in which we live. I have shown this once before a long time ago, but here is how Paul and the other New Testament authors picture history. So there are two times in the Bible. It talks about it as if there's these two eras. There's this age and the age to come. This age is this era of sin and darkness, and the age to come is the era when Jesus reigns and everything is light. But it isn't two separate circles the way it is in that picture. In Scripture, what we find is that those circles 
overlap. That Jesus has come and the light is shining in the world, but the darkness has not yet disappeared. We live in this kind of gray time of early dawn in between the night and the day. Theologians refer to this in the Bible as the overlap of the ages, that we are in some sense in both ages at once. And so when Paul says the night is almost over and the day has nearly come, he's not speaking about, you know, about dates, but what he's doing is he's trying to describe this time in which we live, where it's the dying hours of the night and the daytime has almost fully arrived. There is darkness in the world, but there is life shining as well. That hope of the dawn when those first streaks appear in the sky, right? We rejoice not just because it's gray, but because we know that the sun is rising. And that's the image that Paul is trying to give his readers of the age in which we live to drive them to a sense of urgency and hope in the Christian life. People sometimes make arguments based on the sweep of history. Have you ever heard people kind of talk that way of like, history's on my side, or, you know, things are hard right now, but in the end, history will vindicate me. And Paul is making that kind of argument about the world. Ever since Jesus entered the world, he said, light has begun to flow in. And in the future, when the day fully breaks, um, that will be fully true. But if in the past it's been accomplished, and in the future it will come, that has to change the way we think about the present. That redefines how we think about this age. Really, I think it redefines it in three ways. And I'd offer these as the three ways that this applies to us. First, Paul says it means we should walk in the light. We should walk in the light that is coming rather than the darkness that is passing away. So here's the image that Paul is using. He's saying if it were nighttime, then this set of behaviors would seem natural to us. They would fit. Scripture often associates sin and darkness. But he says that it's not nighttime anymore. It's dawn, and the day is coming, and so we need to turn from those ways of living and seek instead to live in a way that reflects the light. Things that look appealing in the darkness do not look nearly as appealing in the light of day. Things that are hidden in the darkness are revealed in the light of day. And Paul is calling his readers to recognize what their sin is going to look like when the day breaks. We need to tell ourselves the truth about our sin. One of the greatest strengths of sin, I think, is that it stays in the shadows and kind of keeps us from taking a good look at it. It's all about whispers and insinuation and good advertising. Because when we put it in the light, it doesn't look nearly as appealing (laughs) as, um, as it does in the shadows. I mean... Just try this sometime, okay? And this is going to be a weirdly practical thing to try when you're thinking about sin. But when you're wrestling with some temptation, just sit down and actually, like, think it all through. Like, make a pro-con list, right? Just say, like, what what am I actually getting from this thing? But but for real, right? Sin is all about making big promises. But what, what am I actually getting from this sin? And then what does it cost me? What does it cost me internally in terms of my integrity and the way that I perceive myself? What does it cost the people around me in the ways that it um, hurts them or might wound them? What does it cost the world, right? Given the good that I could be doing in the world, what does it cost the world to do that? That won't make you immune to temptation, right? The flesh still longs for sin. 
But the more we do that, the more we start to recognize that in the truth, in the light of day, then it's just not really as appealing as we think. That it is more costly um, and less fulfilling than it likes to tell us it is. So we should walk in the light because the day is coming. Second, we should work for the light. We should work for the light. In verse 11, Paul calls his hearers to wake up from your slumber because salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. He's saying, wake up, right? The dawn is coming. It's time to get up and get to work. There is a real sense in which our time is short. Even though I've been trying to stress that that's not Paul's point, that does lie behind part of what he says here. Um, But there's a right and a wrong way to think about that shortness. The wrong way is to think that Jesus, like, has to return tomorrow, right? Or next month or something. Um, and, and, and we end up living out of this kind of reckless obedience that actually often kind of harms people because we're not living for the long term and, you know, and thinking through those things. And that's a problem. But um, we should be watchful and we should be mindful of the fact that Jesus could return very soon in our lives. And even more than that, we should remind ourselves that even if he doesn't, the time is still much shorter than we think. Um, We all have a limited amount of time in our lives. Elizabeth and I have been um, talking a lot about that lately. And even if it's not as limited as it is for, you know, for those kinds of situations, man, I talk to these older saints, and and they, you know, and they they say, like, man, you just, you feel like you have forever, and you feel like you have forever, and then suddenly one day you wake up, and you realize that most of your life is behind you. The time is short. In all of those ways, and that should lend a sense of urgency to how we live. Part of what Paul is saying is that each day is an opportunity to work and serve and seek to bless the world and love people. And each day that we do not do that um, is a day that we won't get back one way or another. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. But Paul isn't just saying that to give this sense of urgency in that like, oh no, we might miss out way. Ultimately, he's saying that to give us a sense um, uh, that we have hope for success. That we should hope in the light as well. We should hope in the light. I think this is where we can go wrong with that sense of urgency. We can make it sound like we are failures Like, we don't spend every moment, right? I have those moments where I'm just like, man, like, I wasted 15 minutes. I'm not going to get that 15 minutes back. I'm such a failure. I'll spend the next 15 minutes, you know, like, bemoaning how I wasted the last 15 minutes. Um, But Paul's image is hopeful. It's not condemning. He doesn't say, wake up because judgment is coming. He says, wake up because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The day will come, therefore work with hopefulness. I think people like to get weird about um, the idea of Jesus' return sometimes, right? I mean, you, I'm sure, have encountered this. It's blood moons and world governments and nuclear wars and all this stuff that they like to talk about. And just don't, at the simplest level, this is what the Bible says about Jesus returning. What the Bible says, it's this, my summary statement of all the theology of the Bible is Jesus is at work in the world fighting the darkness, and, he, and in the end, he will come back and he will win. Right? That's the Bible's picture. That Jesus is at work in the world, and that in the end, Jesus wins. And yeah, we can talk about some of the details, but they shouldn't distract us from that reality. Um, When Paul thinks about Jesus' return, he's not thinking about newspaper headlines, but the day breaking 
and the victory of God. And it's a victory that he calls us to fight for and to work for. Um, in, in verse 12, when he pictures what we're called to do, he says, put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light, right? He says, day is coming, so put on the armor and go out to do battle for the light, which we're doing because Jesus Christ will win. The thing about the devil is that he is strong and he is at work in the world, but his primary source of strength lays in lies. Lies he tells us about ourselves and about the world. And one of those main lies is the lie of defeat and helplessness and hopelessness. Think about that person that you love who is struggling in their life. What Satan does is convince us that they will never change, and so we give up working and loving them. We stop praying for them. Think about that sin that you struggle with yourself, right? What Satan does is convince you that you're never going to have victory over it, and so you stop fighting and stop seeking to live in the light. Think about the world. What Satan does is tell us this story of decline and defeat that makes us just hunker down and and be afraid rather than seeking to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ and love people. And so we... We just don't do that anymore. Those lies have power because we believe them. We often lose because we don't engage in the fight. But Paul's reasoning is this. It is that, yes, there is darkness in the world, and there is pain, and there is failure, but the end of the story is the light and victory of God. That is secure, and so rather than those Rather than believing those lies of defeat and helplessness, what we do is we we recognize that in the end, we win, and then we go out and fight in Jesus Christ, knowing that he has secured that for us. So that's the second big truth, right? If love is the context within which we're supposed to understand the direction of the Christian life, then recognizing that the time is right gives us the hope and the courage to go out and live those lives of love. And as we close, I just want to tie those two realities together with a final thought, which is that that kind of life is a truly powerful and beautiful thing. I think part of what we've lost in um, our world, in the modern world, is a sense of what I would call internal aspiration. Internal aspiration, which is to say aspiring to things within yourself. We aspire to lots of stuff out there, right? We aspire to, you know, to houses and to paychecks and to cars and to, you know, having a certain body and having a certain partner. And when we think about our dreams, we end up often thinking about those things. But we've lost a sense that many of the things that matter most and are the most beautiful and worthwhile are internal things. Character and dignity and honor. And I suspect sometimes that part of why we have so much self-hatred and despair in our modern culture is that we get all this stuff out there in the world that we're chasing after, right? But we never actually see any growth or change in ourselves, and so those things feel empty. You know, we've, we've got the same kind of hollow, you know, I mean, like thing inside of us living in our progressively bigger mansions. But imagine the person that Paul pictures in these verses, a person ruled by self-giving love, so invested in others and the world that they are almost self-forgetful, 
a person of truth and grace with the courage of their convictions, but the compassion to share them in a way that is gentle and kind, a person who walks in the light, unashamedly clothed in Jesus Christ, who is, you know, who allows that light to kind of shine in and through them and doesn't hide those parts of themselves in the darkness anymore. Don't you want to be that person? I am not telling you that you can be from this sermon, right? Just so we understand each other. Like that is something that no, none of us will fully arrive at in this life. But have that picture of that unashamed, loving, self-giving person in your mind. The more that we have that picture, the more we are called to chase after them. And the more it begins to be worked in our hearts. It will not be fully completed until Jesus returns. But we know on that day that it will be. And that that victory will be won. And we know that Jesus is at work in the world now. So let's aspire to be people that show his light and his love to the world as we walk in the path that he has led. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I both am encouraged by that vision and challenged in the ways that I know that I fall so far short of it. I pray that you would minister Christ to our hearts when we see our failure, and that you would show Christ to our eyes that we might grow more and more to be like him. Pray these things in the name of he who is your life and shows your light. Amen.